Could you please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Exodus? Exodus chapters 35 and 36. You're welcome to take your bulletins and follow along. The text is printed on page 9 of the bulletin. So today's sermon is actually going to cover from Exodus 35:30 through the end of chapter 39. This is going to be a large chunk. We're not going to read all of that. Uh, we know those stories because we read them already. This is the, the large section of God's people actually doing the work now of building the tabernacle. We read the, the chapters where God was giving the instructions of what they were to do and how they were to build the tabernacle. And the majority of these chapters is now repeating those same material, but now it's saying not the instructions, now it's the doing, it's the executing. It's actually the building, and it repeats it in all of its glorious detail showing us that it is important not merely to hear the word of God, but it's important to actually obey and to do the word of God. And so it shows us that these people received it, they treasured it, they stored it up in their hearts, and they practiced it. They obeyed. They did the work that the Lord had called them to do. But we're going to focus primarily on the verses that are in the bulletin from chapter 35, verse 30, through chapter 36, verse 7. And so... I'm going to read these verses for us. Let me ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of the word of the Lord today? This is Exodus 35, starting in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, Everyone whose heart stirred him came to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we praise your name that you have given us your word, that you have delivered it to us, that you even now have preserved it and give us the power of your very Holy Spirit to work that word in our hearts, to open our eyes, that we might read it, 
uh, with understanding, that we might uh, read it with great benefit, that it might do us good, that it might help us to see the glory and the work of our Savior Jesus Christ, for he is the one who is exalted throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Lord, would you show him to us today, lift him up, that he might draw us closer to himself. And Lord, may your, may your word be at work in our hearts, drawing us to Christ, giving us a greater love for him and for his people. We pray these things through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't know how many of you are into March Madness or have been following the basketball tournament that's going on right now. I I have this sneaking suspicion that it's not very many based on the church bracket, but that's okay. Let me give you an update. So one significant thing happened on Friday night, and that was that uh, a school called UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, beat Virginia. And that was significant because Virginia was the number one seeded ter- team throughout the entire tournament. They were one of the major favorites to win the whole thing. And they lost to number 16 seeded UMBC. And you may know that a number 16 seed in the entire history of this whole tournament has never beat a one seed. The one seeds were 135 and 0 until Friday night. And so as this was happening Friday night, the announcers even then were saying this was truly a historic upset, that this was an embarrassment to Virginia such had never been seen during the tournament for a one seed to lose to a 16 seed. And they lost, I mean, it was a blowout. They really, really lost. So, you know, the game is finishing and they're showing these UMBC players just overflowing with joy and they're cheering and they're jumping up and down and then they pan to the Virginia bench and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you get to the post-game interview with the coach. And, and you never know what you're going to get. In a post-game interview, the, you know, the first thing they do after the game is to go interview the losing coach. And you always wonder, like, how is he going to do? What's he going to say? Is he going to pull a Bill Belichick and just pull his hood down over his face and mumble a few things and storm away? But the Virginia coach is a guy named Tony Bennett who is known, among other things, for being a Christian. And he, if you Google his name today, all of the headlines will talk about what a gracious and dignified interview he gave immediately following this historic embarrassment on national TV. And it truly was gracious and very dignified. He talked about how one of his jobs in that moment was to help his players understand that there is more to life than basketball. That they are not defined by what goes on on the court. That when you step into a national scene like that, sometimes there will be great victories and other times there will be great losses. That's basketball. He would go on to say, I have some wonderful things in my life. My love for my wife, my love for coaching, my love for basketball. Those are wonderful things. But when you line them up in comparison with Christ and the relationship you have with him, with what he's done for you, with what he's given you, they don't even compare That's the greatest truth I know. See, even in that moment when he was speaking, it it was so obvious that he had a perspective on life and on basketball that, that nobody else had. We're so used to seeing in those moments just the cultural idolatry of sports that people say they are defined by winning and losing and it's all about winning. 
that's, that's almost what we've come to expect out of those. And so to see someone who actually had a sense of, of reasonable perspective on life was surprising. And it, it made me ask, even before I knew that he was a believer, to say, what is it that has changed him? Where did he get this new perspective that allows him to not despair over trials, that allows him to have joy even in the midst of these? And it was obvious that that perspective had come from an experience and an encounter with the grace of Christ. Because when you encounter the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus, it changes everything. That's what changes the heart of an individual is the grace of God. What I want us to see in this passage is exactly that same thing, how Israel has been changed by their encounter with the grace of God. Because if we were to go back just four chapters in the book of Exodus, back into chapter 32, we would see this very ugly picture of Israel. Right? Here they were, chapter 32, they had lost interest in the things of the Lord. They said, this Moses character, we don't, we don't know what's become of him, and they didn't seem to care. And so they asked Aaron, Aaron, build us new gods. Give us something new. May the works of our own hands give us identity and dignity and purpose and meaning in life. That's idolatry. But now, we read here in these verses in 35 and 36, and you just hear it, everything is different. Everything is different. These are people who are now not building their own kingdom and their own gods. They are joyfully and gladly building for the Lord. These are people who are no longer living for money, who have to be commanded by Aaron to give gold for the golden calf. They're so freely and generously giving to the construction project of the tabernacle that that Moses has to say, stop, stop giving. There's more than enough here to do all of the work. Before they were slothful, now they have this zeal for the things of the Lord. What has changed? What has given them this new perspective? Well, it's what happens in the intervening chapters. It's that they have this encounter with God and they experience His grace. And I mean they experience very specifically His grace in forgiving very specific sins. And and when you have that conviction of the the power of sin, the, the depth of sin, the hideousness of sin, and then you understand that God actually forgives you for your specific sins... Not thinking of grace sort of intellectually or philosophically or in a vacuum, but but when you understand how his grace operates in your own life and what difference it makes, that changes everything. It certainly changes perspective and it gives you, I believe, the zeal and joy that we see in 35 and 36. So here's the two qualities I want us to see that they now have, that this changed people has. They have become a spirit-filled building community and a generously giving community. That's the two things they're doing in these chapters. They are doing spirit-filled building and generous giving. So first, they're doing some spirit-filled building in this chapter. In the first few verses we read, two of the craftsmen are singled out by name at at the beginning here, these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. And we know there were more than two people that were working on the tabernacle. Uh, chapter 36, verse 1 mentions uh, every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence. So there was a whole community of craftsmen who were skilled and who were gifted, who knew how to do this sort of artistic work that the Lord had called them to do. 
but two of them are m- mentioned by name. They're sort of the leaders of the artistic guild building the tabernacle, Bezalel and Aholiad. And we see that they're qualified. Verse 30 of chapter 35 are the qualifications. It says, uh, he is called Bezalel and he's filled him, this is verse 31, he's filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. And it goes on with the work that he's being called to do. Do you think the Lord has a pretty deep interest in the building of his tabernacle? We could say, on the one hand, this is, this is a construction project. Every Israelite lived in a tent. They're building a tent. They know how to build tents. Right? But he doesn't just say, anyone can come build me a tent. He not only calls specifically by name these two men to be the leaders, but he fills them with his spirit. It says that Bezalel is actually given the spirit of God to empower him. Now, this is special in the Old Testament, right? When we study the New Testament, uh, we see all believers are filled with the spirit of God. He empowers us for godly living. But that is, in, in many ways, that's a unique gift to the New Covenant. Uh, the operation of the Spirit in the Old Testament is very different. In the Old Testament, we don't read about this kind of universal gift of the Spirit. Rather, in the Old Testament, when we read of the Spirit being given, uh, the Spirit is coming on someone. He's filling them. He's coming in power in order to empower them for a particular task. So here, he is coming, and God is filling these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, with his Spirit for the particular task of building the tabernacle of God, which shows us that not only first, I mean, it shows us how seriously God takes this building. This is no ordinary tent. This is no ordinary building. This is a tabernacle. This is where God has chosen to dwell. This is where he has chosen to cause his glory to come and to dwell in the very midst of the people. This is where the Ark of the Covenant will be. This is where the the lampstand, the golden lampstand, that is this, this symbolic version of the burning bush that goes with Israel wherever they go such that, that it is holy ground, such that the priests minister barefoot before it. So the very act even of building this tabernacle is seen to be an act of worship because the craftsmen are using their gifts to serve the Lord. And when, by the power of God, you use the gifts of God to serve God, that's an act of worship. And that's exactly what they are doing here. They are craftsmen set aside to build the tabernacle of the Lord. Now, I want us to see some of the connection here with the New Testament, because this is very important. In the New Testament, we know this, God doesn't build a tabernacle, he doesn't build a physical temple Right? There's no one temple. In the Old Testament, it was very important. There was, there was one temple. Right? There was not a temple in every city like we think of our churches. There was one temple in Jerusalem, and all Israel would go to it. They would stream into Israel three times a year, or into Jerusalem. The New Testament is totally different. God does not build a physical temple. He builds his church. And if you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I think one of the most evocative descriptions of the church that we find in the New Testament is when the New Testament tells us that the church is the temple of the living God. And when it says that, 
it's not talking about the buildings that we call our churches. It's not saying those are God's temple. It's talking about us, the people, right? All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, together with their children, we are God's church. And, and this is saying that we, the church, are God's temple. Not a building, it's a people, but it's the same thing. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Ephesians 2.19 says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he's saying the people of God, the church, us, the body of Christ, we are now God's temple. Right? And it's just like there's a building. And he says that the Jesus is the cornerstone. That's the most important stone in the foundation. The apostles and the prophets make up the rest of the foundation. And we, like living stones, are being built together to form God's temple. So what's that mean? What, I think that's one of the most beautiful and evocative descriptions of the church. Why? Because the temple is where God's spirit and God's glory and God's presence dwell in the midst of his people. The temple, or the, the, the tabernacle and the temple, they were in the center, the direct center of the people of Israel. And that was where the presence of God was. And when they finish in Exodus chapter 40, they finish the construction and the cloud of God's glory descends and it dwells in the tabernacle with such power that the priests can't enter. That's the church. The church now, we, the body of Christ, are where God's spirit has chosen to dwell, where he makes his presence known in the midst of his people. It's not in one building that we come to and leave. It's in the body of Christ the church itself. And how is God's spiritual temple, the church, to be built? Well, there's some parallels from Exodus to the New Testament as well, isn't there? In Exodus, the temple is built, or the tabernacle is built, when God pours out his spirit into these craftsmen and he empowers them for the work of building the tabernacle. Well, what do we see in the book of Acts? Jesus ascends into heaven and he takes his spot on his throne at the right hand of God. He's exalted. And the first thing he does is what? He pours out his spirit into his people. He pours out his spirit into his people to empower them now for the task of building this spiritual temple in which the people are the living stones. Right? We build the temple not with physical materials but by adding believers to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and it says 3,000 living stones on that day are added to the temple that God is building. And then in the next chapter, Peter and John heal a beggar and they explain that they did this through the name of Jesus and they say there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And on that day, another 10,000 living stones are added to that that physical or that spiritual tabernacle of the church that they are building and it says day by day the lord was adding to their number those who were being saved what is happening in the book of acts and the whole new testament god is building his temple right his living temple of which jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets 
are the foundation. And we, those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the stones. And Ephesians says it's a temple that grows. It's a temple that grows as more and more stones are added to the spiritual temple that the Lord is building. It grows ever larger because the Spirit of God was poured out into the believers to empower them for service. To empower them to use the gifts that God has given them, whatever gifts those may be, to serve God, to build the spiritual temple. Just like here in Exodus, God has poured out his Spirit to these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, to empower them to use their giftedness that God had given them to build the tabernacle for the Lord. That's the principle. The Spirit of God empowers the building of the temple of God through the people of God. And that's exactly what we see. So the first thing that happens, uh, these are people that are now changed by their experience with the grace of God as they begin to build. People who have been changed by an encounter with the grace of God no longer spend their time and their energy and their money to build their own kingdoms. Now they hear the call to use their giftedness to build the Lord's kingdom. No longer seeking their own good with their own money for their own golden calf, but now they have a sense of working for God. They're building. What else are they doing? They are becoming a people marked by generous giving. Generous giving. We saw this last week in the beginning of chapter 35 that Moses, he, he brings the Lord's command to the people. And what's he say? Whoever is of a generous heart is to give their contribution for the building of the tabernacle. This was, remember, this was a people who was out in the middle of the desert. And they were now called to build this truly magnificent tabernacle for the Lord. Things overlaid with gold, made with pure gold, precious uh, jewels, precious metals, beautiful fabrics that the curtains would be made out of. Where are they going to get all these materials in the middle of the desert? They're going to get them because the people are going to bring their contributions. And we noted this. I think we made this point very carefully last week. We emphasized this, that no one was to be compelled uh, or forced to give a contribution. Right? Moses was so clear about that. In chapter 35, he said, in verse 5, anyone who's of a generous heart is to give. Uh, verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, all those who were of a willing heart. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work the Lord had commanded, they brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Over and over and over, this principle is laid down that no one is coerced into giving towards this project. Because that, that could not be uh, freely and, and joyfully done as an act of worship to the Lord. And that's what the purpose is here, is that this is to be done as an act of worship. And so the tabernacle was built entirely out of freely donated materials. No compulsion. It says, only if the Lord moves you to do so, and you could do it freely and gladly with a generous spirit were you to come and to give. And that's the principle. And we saw last week that that same principle carries over into the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, do you remember? These are well-known words. He says, everyone should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that's not at all how Aaron took the offering for the golden calf. 
Right? Aaron commanded people, bring your gold. If your wife has gold earrings, bring them. If your daughters have gold necklaces, bring them. There was a command to give. And I would be so bold, perhaps, as to say that there is always something wrong in a church where you are compelled or coerced into giving. If there's a church that tells you how much you are to give, that tells you what to give, how often to give, there's something very wrong with that. Because the principle, Old Testament and New, is this. That if your heart moves you, if your spirit stirs you, that, that don't come reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible does not teach that we are all about compelling people to give to the church. The giving that gives glory to God is giving that is done from a free and a glad heart. The Bible is very clear on that. You know why? Because God doesn't need anybody's money. God doesn't need anything. He is not supplied by human hands. But when we come and joyfully and cheerfully give to the Lord, there is this delightful aroma that rises up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling sacrifice because it's freely offered as sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord. And that is an act of worship that is very pleasing to him. Giving to the Lord the, the offerings that we take up, it's not about the money. Sure, the church needs money. Ministry costs money. We have bills to pay. And God has supplied for that. But the real act of worship is meant to be, or the real act of offering, it's meant to be an act of worship. Right? We don't pause worship to say, okay, now we have to take the offering and then we'll continue in worship. The offering is how we worship the Lord with our money. It's how we give to him gladly, cheerfully, joyfully. Now, now you might be able to imagine this because I can certainly understand why, why this principle of free giving and generous giving and no, no compulsion or coercion would make some church leaders a little bit nervous. Right? As we know it, ministry costs money. Right? If we don't get enough offering, there's going to be problems. And, and we here at New Life Burbank are not so far removed from those very days when, when our meetings were filled with some, some worry about where the Lord was going to provide for our finances from. Ministry costs money. And, and, and there will be pastors who will sometimes, some pastors, will get this fear right, that if, if we tell people that they can simply give whatever they want, that they won't give very much. And that's kind of the natural fear. Like, no, 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 we need money. We have to tell them, give a lot. God will love you more. Right? We try to twist their spiritual arm to get them to give in, in violation of every biblical principle. I think Exodus 36 puts this fear to rest. The fear is if we don't tell people what to give, they won't give. If we tell them, give whatever you want, they'll give very little. That's the fear. Exodus 36, to my mind, shows us that that is not a fear we need to have. I think that, type, that fear, that specific fear, is just one fear of a larger category of fears uh, that, that many preachers have dealt with over the years. And here's the fear. The fear is we definitely want people to obey the Lord, right? Uh, we want them to follow the Lord. How do you get them to obey? Well, when John Bunyan, he lived several hundred years ago, when John Bunyan was a preacher, he was preaching the gospel of grace. He was a great preacher and he told people, he proclaimed to them that you are saved freely by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not saved by doing good works. 
You're not saved by your obedience. You're not saved by how, how good of a life you live. You're saved by God's grace. And there were preachers in his day who said, whoa, listen, John, if you tell people that they're saved by grace, they're going to do whatever they want. Those preachers would say, you need to twist their spiritual arm a little bit. Right? Give them some reason to obey. Maybe make their salvation hinge on it. Right? If you preach grace, he said, they said to him, if you preach grace, they'll do whatever they want. And John Bunyan said to them, if I preach grace, they'll do whatever God wants. Because it's the grace of God encountered in the Lord Jesus Christ that changes the heart of the believer. Right? When you encounter God's grace really and truly and sincerely with the knowledge of your own sin, with a true spirit-wrought conviction that yes, you are a sinner, justly deserving God's displeasure, save for his sovereign mercy. When you have that conviction and then you see Christ on the cross dying to take away the punishment for your own sins and you see his body being broken and you see his blood being shed for you and you understand that that is purely the gift of God's free and unmerited grace. That Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing he took the form of a servant for you. That changes the heart. And I believe John Bunyan knew that. He knew that he, if he preached the grace of God, that that actually does more to change the lives and to change the hearts of his hearers than if he takes some worldly physical strategy like trying to coerce them into being good. He says what you do is you start with the heart and you preach the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ because that is how hearts are changed. Isn't that exactly what's happened in Exodus? Isn't that exactly what is people are doing in Exodus? Here, first of all, the people are giving so much that the craftsmen are complaining there's too much. There's too much and they have to go to Moses and Moses has to command them not to give more. He has to command them to stop giving. He says there's enough here to do all of the work and more. They have too much. Can you imagine? Moses doesn't have to go and beg the people, Lord, guys, come on. This is really important. No. He has to do the opposite. Isn't this a fantastic passage? Because four chapters ago, this was a people who had, had no zeal for the things of God. This, four chapters ago. Right? I, I don't know exactly how long in time, but it wasn't long that they were slothful and greedy and going their own way, no interest in the things of the Lord. And I think if we're honest, many of, we have to agree that's where we begin. That's where we begin. We all start with that heart of Exodus 32, no interest in the things of God, interest in our own lives and in building our own kingdom and keeping our resources for ourselves and honest, some of us will have to admit that we still struggle with an Exodus 32 heart. We still find ourselves there. Maybe you've lost some of your zeal for the things of the Lord. Maybe you don't feel a great joy in generosity. What do we do? How did Israel get from 32 to 36? Well, there's one major thing that happens in chapters 33 and 34. And that is, Israel has encountered the grace of God. They have met God and they've found him to be infinitely gracious. 
They've seen that they were a people wallowing in sin and rebellion. And when they encounter God, they find him merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What happens to the human heart when we encounter God like that? Romans 2 verse 5 says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God, it is the mercy and the grace of God that leads us to repentance. See, it doesn't say it's, it's the kindness of God that leads us to feel like, oh, we're off the hook, we can do whatever we want. No, it says when you experience the kindness of God, it leads your heart towards repentance, towards trusting in him, towards obeying him. See, some people think they know how religion works. They say, well, God threatens you with hell. You don't want to go to hell, so you have to obey. You might not like it, you might not want to, but you have to. Well, you might start to obey, but that's, that's the kind of obedience that does not last. That's the kind of obedience that doesn't get you past the parking lot. But the gospel does not do that. The gospel begins by changing your heart through the grace of a loving God. A loving God who loved you before you knew him, who loved you before you loved him, who loved you before you obeyed him. And he sent Jesus to die for you as a a sign of his love. And Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God appears and it teaches us then to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. You see, when we, when we see it, we recognize grace changes everything. It's grace that changes the human heart. Think about Zacchaeus, a wee little man, a greedy little man, a tax collector known for robbing people to feather his own nest, known for being a rich man, rich by thievery. And then one day, Jesus came and invited himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Because Jesus was a friend of sinners. And Zacchaeus encountered Jesus over dinner, and he came out of the house afterward and he said, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will restore fourfold what I have taken from them. There is no law that says you have to give half of your possessions to the poor. There's no law that says you have to restore fourfold what you had taken from someone. Zacchaeus wasn't following the law in order to be religious. He wasn't following the law in order to earn God's favor. He had simply been changed by this encounter with the gracious God in Christ over dinner. And when he came out, his heart was 180 degrees different than it had been going in. Before dinner, he was greedy. After dinner, he was the most generous person we read about in the Gospels. Over the course of one meal, he went from being sort of, basically, but just like a classic American, focused on number one, all about getting ahead, storing up for himself, in love with money, to being afterwards a Christian. One who eagerly and generously gave his possessions away to serve God and to love others. What happens is when people encounter the grace of God in Christ, their heart is changed. Not by commandments, not by threats, but by his love, by seeing his grace in Christ on the cross. 
And so the people have experienced the grace of God. And and when Moses simply puts out a call and says, uh, if anyone is of a willing heart, let him give. He had no idea how many hearts in Israel had been made willing by what they had seen of the Lord. The floodgates are opening up free, giving, generous giving, spirit-induced giving, such that he has to eventually say, stop, don't give any more. Don't give any more, there's no need. You know, something similar happens in the book of Acts in the first few chapters. Uh, when the gospel is being preached with power and people are coming to the faith that says <clears throat> everyone was giving so much that all the needs were being met. No one had any lack. That's what the gospel does. It, that's what the gospel does. This is the key to developing a generosity of spirit. Generosity is not a personality trait. It's a gift of the Spirit. All of us by nature seek our own kingdom. We don't seek God's kingdom. But there's one key to being set free from this tyranny, this tyranny of ourselves, this tyranny of possessions, this tyranny of money and greed. And that is to know God through Christ. To understand who Jesus is. To understand what he does for sinful people to save them from their sins. That, I believe, is the only thing that can set us free, that can break the hold that money and sin have on the human heart is only the grace of God in Christ. When you hear God say to you, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. There's a power in that kind of fatherly, divine affection towards us. There's a power that gives us a new love for him, a new joy in Christ, a new peace, a new perspective on life that changes the way we think about things. And we hear that there is now no condemnation. And when you hear that with ears that have been convicted by the spirit of sin and then hear the gift of God's grace that there is no conviction, God's grace changes everything for us. God's grace gives us the power of this new perspective on life. We go from building our own kingdoms to building God's kingdom. From greedy, get it all, look out for number one, to generous, loving hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our only Savior. He is the one in whom we trust, the one in whom our souls find rest, the one in whom we have learned to walk in green pastures, lie down beside still waters, find refreshment and nourishment for our weary hearts. Father, we ask now that your spirit would continue your good work in us. Take these words that we've read and studied, Lord, press them on our hearts. May we treasure them and may we listen to them. May they bear fruit in our lives 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.